Let's go ahead and read it. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God, we ask now that as we approach this passage, that God, we would understand it well, that God, we would know what it means for us to be light and salt in this world. God, in this world, that's what desperately needs. Needs you. So God, help us to pay attention and help us to walk away knowing how to properly live out this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Last fall, I was listening to an NPR report on the radio on the way home, and it was really interesting. It caught my attention. There's this guy in Maine called the North Pond Hermit. He had lived in seclusion in the woods of the forest for 27 years by himself, living in a tent, not speaking to any other humans, doesn't file a tax return off the grid completely. He survives by breaking into people's houses when they're not there. He said he would never break into a house when someone was there. And he would steal candy and food and cooking utensils. And sometimes he would switch out an old propane tank with one that had more propane in it. And for 27 years, he lived this way. When he was 20 years old, he went into exile, went into the woods. At night, he would go from tree limb to tree limb, like on the ground, and he wouldn't leave any footprints anywhere. And it became an urban myth, because people in this small community would always talk about how random little things would go missing. Have you guys ever seen the movie The Borrowers? That the little people would go and borrow things? People thought that those were real. Because things, small things would disappear in their house. Like, I know we just bought coffee. People thought that their parents had Alzheimer's because they're misplacing things. And finally, one night, a guy happens to set an alarm because he wants to catch this guy, and it's a silent alarm, and he gets the alert, and he goes and he captures this guy, and they get the police, and he says, for 27 years, I've stolen every single day just for my survival. Never stole gold or money, never did anything, but I lived alone. He said one time he passed a hiker in the woods and they asked him, what what did you say to him? I said, hi. Can you imagine for 27 years saying one word to someone else? Hi. Well, a reporter started talking to him and he actually was having a hard time communicating because he had not talk for so long, your brain kind of forgets to like know how to talk to people. But in essence, this guy said, in the midst of my whatever, like my exile, I lost track of time completely. 
He even asked the reporter, what, what year did Chernobyl, the, the Russian nuclear plant, explode? The guy was like, oh, like 1986? Yeah, that was the year I went into exile. Three years before I was even born. And he said, in the midst of that, I began to think what my existence really was. Doesn't talk to anyone. Barely survives. Never has a campfire to give away his, his position. And he just lives. And he found within himself who he really was, who, who he thought he really was. And he came to the conclusion that existence isn't based on what happens with you know, my other relationships and all these things. And he boasted that in 27 years he never once got sick because you can only get sick if you're around other humans. And I, and I look at that crazy story and now he writes in prison that he's extremely bored because he has nothing to do. And so the first time in 27 years when he was put into jail, that was the first time he had slept inside and he couldn't sleep. The North Pond Hermit, as they call him, is a stark contrast to what the life of a disciple of Jesus should look like. The disciple of Jesus is not someone who says, I'm going to live in exile of everyone else. I'm not going to have relationships. My existence is only within myself. I don't need to do anything other than that. A disciple of Jesus... understands that I need to be in this world, yet not of this world, yet I need to actually be an influence to America, to the world, to other countries. As a disciple of Jesus, it's not just about me. So if the Beatitudes of what we talked about two weeks ago are what a Christian's character should be like, of who we really are, this passage talks about what the Christian should be, what our influence should be. When you go to either Tumwater High School or Black Hills or Capitol and Timberline, right? Is that all four? I think. And am I missing anyone? Or um, South Sound Puget Community College, is that it? It's close enough, right? What does my life as a Christian have to do with all these people around me? Or another question that we can pose is, how does being a disciple of Jesus make me live my life differently than those around me? And so Jesus uses two different analogies to describe that as for my disciple, for someone who's going to follow me, who's going to say, I believe in Jesus, there's two ways in which you are to be an influence to this world. We don't run away from the world like the northbound hermit, pond hermit. But rather, we are influence to the world. Now, it just, it, it kind of, um, it's interesting to me. If you look down at verse 13, he immediately says, you, you are. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you need to be salt of the earth. My command to you is that you go and be salt no. He starts off with this very personal where he's trying to attack you individually. You. Not you as a group, but you are this. Not you ought to be, not Sundays, not just on Fridays, but this is just who you are. You see, this is something that our world gets half right. They get it half right. They say, well, I can't be anything other than I am. 
And so they'll say phrases like, I was just born this way. This is just who I am. This is how I was raised to be. This is just who I am. I'm just doing it. And, and in one sense, they are right, right? You literally cannot be anything other than you are, right? That's where they get it half right. Because God is not just concerned with who you are now. He is concerned about who you are in Christ. He is concerned about who you are being reborn and being transformed and who you can be. And for Jesus to say, you are the salt of the earth, is not to, to say, hey, sometimes you need to make sure you, you go and do this. It's saying, as my disciple, you naturally do this. You can't be anything other than you are. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are going to be salt and light. There is no, there is no question of when or how. It's you do this. So you are the salt of the earth. So there was a commentator who wrote 11 different uses of salt in um, antiquity, you know, for Jesus' time, right? 11 different uses. And I don't think Jesus really had the assumption that he wanted his listeners to think through the 11 different uses of salt back then, right? But how do we use salt in our, in our modern day culture? What is salt really used for? Seasoning, right? So, like McDonald's, they get those like very small amount of potato, and then a lot of just oil and fat, and then even more salt on it, right? And it's just addictive and delicious, and yeah, bad things happen. But back then, salt was not primarily used as a seasoning. They didn't have refrigerators or ice packs or deep freezers to keep their meat, right? So if you go hunting and you, you have like a whole carcass and you don't want it to go bad in one day because it will, what happens is salt as a preservative, you put it on something and it draws out moisture and all living bacteria need moisture to survive. So you put your meat in to salt, it draws out all the moisture, all the bacteria and probes can't live on it and so you get to preserve your meat, right? That's what salt was primarily used for. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying this, that you are to stop the moral and spiritual decay of this world. You are a spiritual preservative. This is what my disciples do. They stop the world from being bad. And so the problem is, sometimes the world doesn't necessarily think that they're that bad. Well, people, they're, they're pretty much good. They just need a little bit of help. Give them some education. Give them a job. And people will naturally do the right thing. Jesus says differently. Jesus says this world is actually very bad morally, very bad spiritually. And to be my disciple, you need to preserve it. So Christians are a way that God uses to help slow down the evilness of this world. So not just Christians, right? Thank God for public grace, common grace. Can anyone think of ways that God may curb the evilness of men other than Christians? Take a wild guess, anyone? Yeah. What are some ways that God uses 
to curb the wickedness of men other than Christians. Natural things that all people get to experience. The government, right? The state. God uses the state to kind of sometimes curb or to stop the wickedness. So people are afraid of punishment. So in a way, that, that's a way where people avoid evil because of that. Also, if you look at the family, the family is a way in which God uses that to help stop more evil from going out into the world, stops the decay of the world. But first most and primarily, it is the responsibility of Jesus' disciples to stop the spiritual decay of this world. See, we can't ever really change the world completely, right? Like this world has fallen, it's sinful, it's going down, it's going to burn as the Bible says, right? But what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, necessarily, you're not necessarily going to change the world and save it and you're going to be its hero and its rescue, but you can slow down that destruction. You see, Christians in the past have done this really well. If you look at just over the centuries, you think of Christians who have helped bring about the end of child labor, who have helped prison reform, who have stopped the abolishment of slavery, the slave trade. You know, I, I even I remember watching Good Morning America. I don't watch the show by myself. Amy had it on. But the Ebola outbreak had happened. And you looked at all these people from America going over to Africa to help with this outbreak. And I remember one time, Good Morning America, this guy was with a Christian organization, and he got to say why I'm out here helping with this outbreak. It wasn't a waste. It wasn't a way for him just to feel all righteous. It was a way for him to help be a preservative in the world, to do good, to actually help stop evil from making this world even worse. And this is what we are. You are called to stop the spiritual darkness from growing in our world. How do we do that? How, how do you do that? See, sometimes, I remember in high school, I was very, very, very spiritual, right? And I would tell God in these prayers, I'm like, God, I just want to change the world, and I just want everyone to become a Christian, and God, you're just going to use me in great ways, and man, I'm going to be like the Billy Grahams, and I'm going to, you know, be like the William Wilberforces of the world, and as God started teaching me some things, and as I even think of this group, a lot of you aren't going to be in some great position one day where you're going to do like a whole lot of change, right? You're not going to, I, I'm, I'm going to make a safe assumption that I don't think that there's going to be a future president in this room. Am I wrong? Is that anyone's ambition to be president one day? Jack says, uh, dude, don't speak too quickly. But many, maybe none of us will really have the opportunity to do something really, really great, right? Maybe some of you. But I think for most of us, and this is including me, how can we be salt? How can we be preservative? And I don't think it's a way of saying, I need to go and save the world. I need to change the world. It's all going to rely on me. I think it's more of this. That we do the right thing in a thousand different ways. That all the small ways that we can do what is right, that is how we become salt. That is how we become a preservative in this world. Not by going and saying, you know what, 
all sex slavery in the world, it's going to come to an end under my watch. That's a lofty goal, right? But I think, really though, to be salt is as challenging and is as simple as living the life of the Beatitudes. How can, how can you be salty? How can you be a preservative in this world if you live the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Maybe you aren't so pretentious. Maybe you don't stick your chest up so much. Maybe you aren't so proud about your accomplishments, but you realize your poorness. Blessed are those who mourn. Maybe you say, I could be salty by, by letting people know that, hey, I am just as sinful as you are. Blessed are the meek. How can I be salty? By letting people know that it doesn't have to be about me all the time. That I trust God's plan, that I'd rather suffer than to sin. Blessed are the merciful. Aren't we all in times of need of someone who just says, hey man, don't worry about it. I, I get it, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. Blessed are the, are the pure in heart. How can, we, how can we be salty by being pure in heart? You know, every time you watch pornography or you read a very crude article, you are creating a market that allows for that to happen. You know, if people stopped watching pornography or stopped reading crude articles, that would stop the need and therefore people are like, oh, no one's going to watch this or read this, and they won't do it anymore, right? So that, that's even a way where we can be salty by being pure in heart. And there's far other, better, greater reasons not to look at pornography than that. But that is a way that we can be salt. Blessed are those who are persecuted. How do we be salty? By letting people know that, listen, I'm willing to suffer for what I believe. See, to be salt is to speak up for the truth. And, and I would say there's a time where it's, it's right to speak up and there's a time where it's, it's okay to sit there and just let people say whatever. But salt, people who are salty, never ever say, well, you know what, people are just going to believe what they're going to believe and I'm just going to sit here and not say anything. To see injustice and not to say anything, that is not what salt does. So you might say, well, you know, I really don't want people to know that I was at that event, someone tagged me in at church, so I'm going to untag myself. Or, you know, I really don't, I don't want people to know that I think that way, so, you know, I really got to make sure that I kind of tone down my language a little bit. Has anyone here have, have, ever had salt poured on, like, an open wound? It hurts. That's all I got to say. If you have chap lips and you have something salty... <coughs> Salt's going salt's gonna to burn a little bit, right? Salt's not, it's not going to make you feel the best, right? See, and I think being salt, right, guys, in high school, I think sometimes it's going to be a knock on people's conscience. You know, I remember I was uh, doing valet in Chicago and I had a few friends. They'd get up at work and right across the street there was this bar. And I would still be working, but, you know, they, they would, you know, get done with their shift, take their shirt off. And they'd go inside and they'd have a few beers. And one time my friend Alex came out and he was very, very, you know, toasty, as they would say. Um, having a hard time really just walking to his car. And I remember, like, closing up my shift, talking to him a little bit, and, he, and he's throwing up pretty, pretty hard. And I just said, hey, Alex, 
hey, dude, can I, can I help you? Can I get you a glass of water or something? It's very much like, get away from me. Like, didn't even want to see me. Because I think there's a sense in which he knew what he was doing is wrong, and I, I don't do that type of stuff. And just, just me being around him made him feel uncomfortable. And I ask, when you guys are at school, have you ever had someone, you know, when they found out you're a Christian, like, oh, you know, sorry, I just said all those swear words. Sorry. Do people feel a little bit of like, oh, you're a Christian, I got, I got to act better in front of you. I'm sorry I said that, you know. And that's a good thing, right? We are supposed to preserve the world. Are you the type of person when people are around you, they feel it's okay to swear even more? Or they think it's okay to, to joke or to gossip about people? Do you preserve the world or do you make it worse? Because we can do that at times. Jesus didn't say you are the gold of the earth. He didn't say you are the, the honey of the earth, right? And I think back to Genesis when God made man, he made Adam out of dust, right? He made, he made humans out of dust. When God spoke through Moses, he spoke through a a bush. When God decided to give a king to his people, he went to the youngest brother, David. And when he used that king to defeat Israel's enemy, he used stones. And when God sent his son, he sent him as a helpless baby through a scared and young virgin. And to us, he calls us Salt, plain, common, yet powerful. It preserves. It knocks on the consciences of people. It says there's injustice in the world and I'm going to fix it. It says I'm going to do the right thing in a thousand different ways. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus is clearly saying something here. He says, between us, the church, those who are my disciples, there is a difference between us and the world, right? The world is spiritually and morally dark and it's decaying and bad things are happening. So in one sense, you have to understand that there is a distinction between the church and the world. The kingdom of the world is against the kingdom of God. That is why they crucified Jesus and that's why they will persecute us. And so I sometimes, I, I think it's weird at churches where they say, hey, you know what, in order to get the people of the world to be Christians, we kind of have to act like we're not going to be a church. So we're going to make sure that we kind of don't do church things at church. So we're not going to really sing all those worship songs, and we're not going to really talk about the Bible that much. We're going to try to be more like the world, and so that way when they come in, they can become one of us. It's stupid, really. In essence, what Jesus is saying it's very weird logic. So, you know, you, you live that way, the world, okay? I'm not going to do that because I love you. There's this quote that I really, really like. 
It says, our ability to make a difference in the world depends on our willingness to be different from the world. Our ability to make a difference in the world depends on our willingness to be different from the world. You see, the task of Christians is to be unusual. Our influence, guys, listen, high schoolers, our influence to your high schoolers, to people in your family who don't know Jesus, is to be unusual. Not unusual in the sense like, hey, if you become a Christian, you get a free hat and a free t-shirt. Not that type of unusual. The unusual that we are different in our love. We are different in the way we talk. We are different in how we spend our time. You see, we live in a very modern society where there's electricity and lights everywhere. And so, you know, even when it's cloudy outside, lights from the freeways reflect off, and it's not even that pitch dark. But one time I went camping near Yosemite, there's no lights around, it's a cloudy night, and I tell you, three feet from my face, I couldn't see my hand. And you think about in days where there was no electricity and there was no light, and you think about lighting a tiny little lamp and how much illumination it would give to the room, and you can do things, you can have conversations, and you can read now. Does it make much sense to put it under something? Does it make much sense to, you know, not treat it valuable? Um, there's a ski resort that was, it was like two hours away, but we drive down this valley, and if you look up to the mountains, you can always see the ski resort at night. You know why? Because it boasted one of the best night skiing places to go in California. So it had huge bright lights. Like, it was like, you'd be in the middle of the city, and there's lights all around you, and you look up to the mountain, and you see this big, just shining light. And we're talking like, it's like 60 miles away, and I just see mountain high. It was impossible to miss. It was just there. Have, ever, have any of you like traveled on an airplane at night? Like over America, maybe? Not over the ocean? And you look out, and there's nothing for a while, there's nothing for a while, and then guess what? It's like a tiny little town of maybe like 20, 30 people or something, and there's just tiny few lights that you see come up. You see, light is powerful. It shines into the darkness. I remember my dad, like every, and you know, like dad and high schoolers, you know, we're sleeping until like 10.30 in the morning, and he would come in and he'd, he'd flip on the lights, right? And my older brother was a lot worse. I was just smart and just cover up, you know. And my older brother was just so vicious, like, Dad, turn the lights off! He's like throwing the alarm clock at him and all this stuff. My dad's just like... <sighs> but you know, when you shine light at darkness, guess what happens? Darkness gets mad. It doesn't like it. It says, oh, turn it off, right? I wonder how many of you, when you're at school, when you have an opportunity to not just shine your light, but to reflect the light of the world who is Jesus, are afraid you're afraid of the sting that it might give. You're afraid of what people might think of you now. You see, 
this passage is interesting because it's not saying that people will glorify God by just us proclaiming it, right? I just need to go and make sure that I preach the gospel to every single person. That's part of it, sure. But more importantly, if we do not live our lives in a way where people can't see it, it doesn't give people an opportunity to express the gospel. See, when you stand up for truth, when you stand up for the gospel, it gives people a category to accept the gospel. They say, wait, that person's actually really nice. That person's thoughtful. That person doesn't gossip about people. And that person believes that the Bible is true? Like, whoa, that, that person's different. I'm sorry, I'm all over the page here. I don't know where my notes went. Okay, here we go. So, two things that we really learn about this, okay? First thing is, we cannot be separatist Christians, right? So, do you guys know what monks are, kind of? Like hermits? Just like the guy I talked about earlier. They go out into the wilderness, they start this little place, and all they do all day is meditate on Scripture, and they pray, but they're ever in the world. So if you're ever in a place in your life where, you know, I just want to retire and I want to be in my little mountain cottage and I never want to see people ever again, you are like directly not doing what you're supposed to do. Christians are always supposed to be part of the world, but not in the world. But it also means this, that we can't be secret Christians. It means that you can't just sit there, okay, I'm a Christian and all, and I'm just going to sit here and I'm not going to really let anyone know that I'm a Christian. And I'm just going to be really cautious about how I come about saying that. And don't we live in a world where it's just, it seems like you're the bad guy if you boast that what you believe is the only way. If you go and say, you know what, no. Christianity is the only way to God. Christianity is the only right way. Christianity is the only legitimate philosophy or moral system in the world. We are the bad guys. But Jesus says you cannot hide your light because this is who you are, right? You are the light of the world. And guess what? I know what what it's like to be in high school. I know what it's like at times where you want to speak up for your truth, but you know what? I just... It's a little too hard. It's not worth the pushback. See, this sermon is all about discipleship. And by discipleship, I mean this. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to say that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? We looked at that in the Beatitudes, that this is what their character is. But as far as your influence, what do you do in your life that acts as a preservative? What do you do in your life that shines forth truth? Some of you, I think, are better than others. But, you know, we have opportunities to do this every single day. But, you know, we also have other opportunities. So we're doing 30-hour famine, right? Three-hour famine is an opportunity for us to raise awareness about hunger in the world. So we go to our friends and say, hey, you know, we're, my church, my youth group is doing this thing called three-hour famine. And uh, just want, I want to invite you. Well, what is it? Well, you know, we don't eat for 30 hours and we do some things and then we do some community service, out, you know. And that's an opportunity for what? 
for us not just to be a preservative, but also for us to be a light. And even doing the 30-hour the famine itself without friends is an opportunity to go into our community, to do things, to shine our light, to be a preservative, to care about missions, to care about our own community, to care about, you know, there's a quote I, I was reading, and this guy said, to wash our hands of society is not love, but worldliness. But to be concerned about society is love and not worldliness. I'm sorry, I mixed that completely up. Let me try that again. To wash our hands of society. To say, I don't, society is wrecked, man, they're going downhill. Barack Obama, he's leaving this country. Whoa, I'm done. Forget politics, we're doing anything in society. It says, to wash your hands of society is worldliness and not love. But to care about society to say, I want the best, I want to be salt, I want to be light, is love. High schoolers, you have opportunities every single day. So what does this mean on Monday, right? What does this passage right here mean for you tomorrow? That as a Christian, it's not just about you. It's about going into your high school, it's about going to your families, it's about everywhere you go that you are going to Proclaim this light. I was really tempted to sing that Sunday school song, right? Everyone knows it. This little light of mine. Last thing I'll say. Last thing I'll say. Some of us don't do this well. Some of us, if we were really to think like, dude, I don't ever help preserve anything good. I don't really ever let my light shine. Like making things better, I think I make things worse at times. If you go one year through high school without someone really knowing that you're a Christian by the way you live, you really need to consider if you really are a Christian. Because to be salt and light is to reflect Jesus. And for those of us who at times, you know, man, I just, I don't do that good. We need to come to Christ. We need to confess. We need to say, Jesus, I I need to be your ambassador on earth. And he'll forgive you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to to study the Bible. God, I pray that these high schoolers understand the seriousness of who they are in you. God, help us to be salt. God, help. I pray that you'd raise up students in this room, God, who would go out and do bold things for you, who would see the injustices of this world, and in your name, Lord, they would fight poverty and injustices and slavery and horrible things that this world has to come to. And God, help us to be light, God, to shine, God, to let, us, let the world know who we really are, what we believe, and to not be afraid of that. God, may we do this in order that people may see what we're doing and how we're living. And as a result, God, that they may glorify you. God, thank you for your grace and we don't do this as well as we should. Thank you for your love that you died for us, that we can have forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.